of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, Friday, Friday. Hey, it's been a long time since I busted out one like that, right? It is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's time for the Expert Council Q&A Show of the Week. I have got a massive lineup of Expert Council members for you today. We will not have a Ron Paul Liberty highlights, though, because our contact over there, Chris, is finally getting to take a vacation. So, woohoo! I'm all about vacations and taking some time off and recharging those batteries. So, leading off today will be someone we haven't heard from in a while, Tim uh, the Toolman Cook. He will be talking about reviving old batteries and, well, just the flat reality of that time, we just need to replace tools. Uh, the, the power tools especially tend to not be lifetime purchases Getting a decade out of, especially like a second-tier tool, is pretty damn good. Uh, Professor CJ will talk about the history of an organization called MOVE, and it's actually a recent anniversary of something that went on with that organization in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the United States, well, not really the United States, the Philadelphia Police Department literally bombed a neighborhood, like dropped a bomb on a neighborhood. I'm not kidding. We'll hear about that from CJ. Um, Ken Berry will talk about Total versus net carbs. This is something we've talked about a lot. I'll have some additions on that one and some thoughts that I have on the overriding philosophy. Josh the Renegade Butcher will talk about, well, how to find a good butcher. Not everybody has Josh living close to them. Nick Ferguson will talk about soil biomes and how they function through winter. I'll have some ads on that. John Pugliano has a tax question and a radio question today. Jeff Lawton will talk about dealing with a weed called Curly Dock. Doc Bones will talk about keeping antibiotics on hand and what new regulations say and where that means we're headed. And I'll tell you where I think the eventual settle point will be on this particular issue when it comes to the fact that fish aquarium hobbyists need access to antibiotics and you can't take a guppy or a grommy or a red-tailed shark to the freaking vet. And so you can't get a prescription for your fish. And you don't need one yet. What will be the compromise? I think I know. We'll see if future, the future proves me right yet again. And then for my anchor segment, I have a lesson from George Washington about bad seed. Let me read you the quote, and this is way deeper of a quote than it seems on the surface, even though he was speaking at the surface level when he said it, more accurately wrote it. Bad seed is a robbery of the worst kind, for your pocketbook not only suffers by it, But your preparations are lost, and a season passes away unimproved. Now, he was talking about literal seed. And the founding fathers were all deeply of the belief that an agrarian society was a very stable and free society of men. And so they were big on this. So he's talking about literally your farm suffering, your garden suffering, for having been sold bad seed. But I'm sure it was not lost on him that this is a much bigger idea. That's what I'll be talking about today. And I'll be asking you the question, are you investing in bad seed? And it's not just for your garden that we're talking about. With that, before we get into it, let's talk about making an investment in a member of our community. Um, Sean Mills, 
who I don't have in the lineup today, which is an oversight, and I'm going to fix that right now before we go into the next segment and get Sean into there, because I got so busy setting this up today, I, for, I forgot to put Sean's segment in where he's going to mention this. But Sean has a new Kickstarter just launched. It's his first one. It's on solar water pumping. He's gotten a lot of questions on that. And he's like, hey, can we really like figure out, like, what are all the ways to do this? What are the best ways to do this? So you put a certain number of pumps and a certain number of power and a certain number of different things, and you end up with a lot of variables. How about 96 variables that are going to be tested in this documentary that Sean's going to make? It's all going to be in electronic format, so we don't have to worry about how many DVDs it would be. It's 2023, for God's sakes. So he's going to have no limits on whatever amount of time it takes to produce this. That's what's going to be invested in it. You can participate for as little as 10 bucks. You certainly can participate at a higher level. Uh, there's a link in the show notes today. There'll be there's a link that I put out in social media. Um, I, I just think that it's pretty low cost to get a piece of this. Sean has dedicated himself to supporting this community in many ways, not just as an expert council member. For years. I'm going to say, Sean Mills was at one of the very first workshops I ever did here. I think it was the second. Might have been the first one, but I think it was the second one. And he has helped countless members of this community with countless questions. Uh, figure out how to do things, get things done, especially in the world of solar. So this would be one of those, like, maybe it's not that important to you that you know how to use solar energy to, to pump water, but maybe you throw in 25 50 bucks, you get the information, you use it as you need it, but you really see it as an investment in Sean. And so if you'd be willing to do that, that would be great. I'm going to get Sean added into the lineup. I'm going to say we're going to put Sean uh, right after Tim Cook, and then we'll go to Professor CJ from there. So with that, let's go ahead and hear from Tim Toolman Cook on reviving old batteries and the need to simply replace tools at times. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here coming back at you from the workshop with another segment for the expert council. So let's get right at it. Today, the subject line for this one says NICAD battery conditioning for the Toolman. Details. I once bought a Rockwell drill driver set with three lifetime batteries that, along with the warranty, are dead. <laughs> After using the reconditioning process of draining and charging, it doesn't help. Is that all there is for the batteries? I bought this set because the lifetime warranty will have to throw away over $100 worth of tools if these batteries are done for. Short answer is, I would say yes. And I forgot to mention the gentleman's name was Richard. If they're NICAD batteries, and I did some digging, it looks like these lifetime Rockwell batteries were available from around 2007 till about 2015. So if you split that in the middle, these batteries are probably over a decade old. And if you have got your, if you've put them to a hard use and, you know, you're looking at them a decade later, then, you know, that's $10 a year for use of those tools. Now, you can try all kinds of hacks and tips and tricks, but with those old batteries, they've probably just lost most of their capacity or, or a significant amount. They're just not going to give you the power you want anymore. Now, if you want to, I did some digging. I'm not sure if this even exists anymore because Rockwell's only been a company since 2005, but they still have a phone number you can call about getting those batteries replaced. I'm guessing you've already gone that route, but if you haven't, 866-514-7625. Give them a call. Can't hurt. And then if that doesn't work for you, what I would suggest is 
looking at something that's going to last you another decade and figuring, you know what, it's probably time to spend another hundred or a couple hundred bucks. Look at yourself. Look at getting a a good drill driver kit once again because they last forever. I had the little Milwaukee 12 volt that lasted me darn near a decade. Now my daughter has it and it's running great. That doesn't mean you need to buy DeWalt or Milwaukee. The company that I've really been recommending a lot for homeowners and people who just want to use stuff occasionally is Ryobi. Their price is really good. Their battery technology is great, and they have a great selection. Plus, their tools are just powerful, and they work for just about anybody. So, honestly, I it may not be the answer you're looking for, but if you've got nearly a decade out of a $100 drill driver kit with three batteries that unfortunately are no good anymore... You know, take them, throw them in a battery recycling box, uh, consider it a good investment in the last 10 years, and then focus on what you can do to upgrade to something a little bit better. So just looking over the Home Depot website currently, there's actually two options that'll probably work really well for you. The first one is a rigid. It comes with two, a, an impact driver and a drill. You get two two amp hour batteries, the charger, and the bag for $139. You can't go wrong with that. I mean, And it's rigid. They have a lifetime warranty on their batteries as well. And then there is the same in Ryobi for $149 drill driver and then two amp and a half hour batteries. So that's a really good deal too. But honestly, for the price, where it's priced right now on the Home Depot site, I would go with the rigid. Because again, if you can get a lifetime warranty on your batteries, why not take it? And really, if they last you a decade, I'd be happy. So I hope that helps. And finally, if you want to get down around that $100 price that you spent, you know, a while back for a kit, another brand that I've heard surprisingly good things about is the one that Walmart's carrying, Heart Brand. Now, I wouldn't want to take them on a job site because, you know, some contractor might get laughed off or they're going to wear out for a contractor. But for a homeowner... You know, a guy who's just using it for jobs around the home, you're going to have great luck with it. They have a drill driver combination with charger and two amp and a half hour batteries for $96.50. It sounds like it's a little bit less than what you spent on the Rockwell kit a few years ago. And from what I've seen from Hart and what I've seen from the Rockwell tools here at the Canadian hardware stores, they are very comparable in quality. And Again, there are reviewers out there who have used these heart tools that I trust that say they're really good for homeowners, so it might be something worth looking into. So I hope that helps. Keep sending your questions to me, guys. I always appreciate hearing from you. I love hearing about tools. Send, send me questions about tools, about being a solopreneur, about starting a handyman business, landscaping business, about content creation any of that stuff. I always love hearing from you. Always, I always get excited when I get another email from Jack. Hey, got another question for you. So keep them coming, guys. And if you want to know what I'm up to, uh, actually, if you want to meet in person coming up, coming up at the end of May, the 28th and 29th, I will be at the Thrivalist Fair in Addy, Washington. Rather looking forward to that. I'm going to be teaching Two presentations on two days. I'll be doing one on home maintenance called Repairedness, both days, and one on entrepreneurship, starting your own business. I'm rather excited. And if you're there that Saturday evening, so the evening of the 28th, we are going to be having a workshop get-together. So anybody and everybody from the community, come by, join up. It'll be a blast. Tickets are like 
$50 for the entire weekend for a whole family and $30 for one day. So would love to see you there. And guys, keep the questions coming. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right, great stuff from Tim. I have a, a little bit to add on this. One, uh, I looked up the Ryobi uh, drill driver combo that was about 100 bucks on um, Home Depot that Tim set the link for on Amazon just to see. And it's actually 88 bucks on Amazon right now, the same set. So uh, there's a link for that. There's a link for the Rigid and the Heart models as well uh, at the locations that Tim mentioned for them. And they certainly weren't less on Amazon, so I left those links where they are where you can get the best price on them. Um, and then I would be remiss if I didn't mention DeWalt because Tim and I both bleed black and yellow. There's a DeWalt drill driver combo. Now, this is the, like the, the lower version of the one that I recommend a lot of the time. It's on sale for about 150 bucks right now on Amazon. That's kind of comparable to the cost of the Rigid. And I just want to say, I think it's really important when you're buying power tools that you start thinking about the entire uh, platform and the batteries and what have you. And so I would move you toward the Rigid DeWalt world if, you, if, if money's not a big deal here. Uh, both of them are exceptional. One of my best friends is a huge Rigid fan. The lifetime warranty on the batteries is the big deal to him because at least at one point he was running lots of contractors out in the field and the batteries are really the cost in most of these platforms and the ongoing recurring costs. So that is a big deal. Uh, both of them would be good choices. Ryobi is a great platform as well. I have no problems or qualms with it at all. Heart, this is my problem with these off-brands marketed by department stores and stuff. When you look at the cost of batteries, they're always actually as much or more per amp hour as good quality name brands. They're usually more, actually, and it's more likely that the original issue would happen is that goes away. And you don't have a way to replace the batteries anymore. Yeah. Uh, so my other thing is that a lot of these, the, the, the better brands, the Ridges, the Ryobis, the Milwaukee's, the DeWalt's, um, you tend to be able to get your hands on adapters to be able to use other batteries where that's not typically the case with an off-brand. So I would just add that into your consideration as you decide what to do next. But I will add completely agreeing with what Tim said. There is a point where tools need to be replaced. Now, this is why I like quality tools. I have about six DeWalt tools out of my shed. They're using the old adapter to new adapter adapter, where you can take a tool that originally was designed to run on the old uh, NICADs, and you can run them on the modern lithium batteries. And almost every major manufacturer has adapters like that. But the bigger thing to me is, so I have a drill out in my shop with one of those adapters on it, and it's a lower-end DeWalt drill. It is not the you know, like super badass one, even for the time. And it has to be 30 years old, and it still works. It has to be at least 30 years old. Because I remember using it when I used to do work on CATV plant, and that's been a while. That's been a while. So just a thought. Uh, you know, I'll save it, save more on it for my discussion about the quote by George Washington at the end of the show. But, you know, always be frugal, never be cheap. There's, there's a reason I always say that. Moving on, let's hear um, from uh, Sean Mills about hydraulic ramp pumps. 
Hey guys, it's Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com and today I've got an expert panel question that's actually a follow-up from the question that I answered on May 25th. And this is from Greg. Greg says, would a RAM pump also be a viable option for the question you answered on May 25th? Details. On your EC segment on May 25th, you answered a question about solar water pumping from a developed spring with a 5 gallon per minute flow rate. Could a RAM pump be used in this situation? What are the considerations in figuring out whether a RAM pump is a viable option in a given situation? I have a stream that flows all year with at least 100 gallons per minute flow, but not much head. In West Virginia, we are considering building a dam this summer to make a half acre trout pond, which would probably end up being at least 12 feet high. The excavator wants to install a vertical culvert pipe and take the excess water flow through the bottom of the dam. What potential do you think there is regarding using microhydro or a ram pump to water a uh, to pump water to a cistern higher up on the property, at least 50 foot higher in elevation? The water would be used for livestock irrigation, potential fire suppression, and possibly we will filter it for drinking. I'd be happy to provide more details if you want. So, Greg. Uh, here's the reality. Uh, the the uh, ram pump is absolutely a good option for this. Uh, for those of you that don't know, a ram pump uses the falling water or the pressure of falling water to move a smaller volume of water uphill. And so if you think about it from the standpoint of like clapping your hands, when you clap your hands, uh, air moves out from between your hands as you bring your hands together. And so if you think about the two valves in a ram pump as two hands uh, and the air is kind of like the water. So it flows in, there's a clap, and then some of that water flows out on the other side. And so there's actually a formula to determine how much water you can get delivered to your uphill tank. You've got your dam or where your water is starting from, and then you've got what's called a drive pipe down to the actual ram pump and then a delivery pipe from the ram pump up to the tank. And the vertical drop of the drive pipe divided by the vertical rise of the delivery pipe multiplied by the flow of water and the efficiency of your pump will give you what you can get delivered to the tank. So the formula is V times F divided by E times X equals D, where V is flow to the pump, F is the fall, E is the lift, X is the efficiency. You typically use 0.6 for a commercial pump or 0.3 for a uh, handmade or homemade pump equals D, which is what you get delivered to the tank in gallons per minute. So, you know, you got to remember you're only going to be able to get a certain amount of water through the pipe itself. A half inch pipe will be between about three and seven gallons per minute, three quarter inch pipe between five and 11. A one inch pipe is going to be between about six and 16. A one and a quarter inch pipe is going to be between eight and 25. Okay. And um, that maximum pressure is just using the gravity of, uh, you know, the weight of the water itself. So your situation should allow for the maximum flow. Um, if you assume that you've got a 10 foot drop and a 50 foot rise, uh, then on a homemade pump, you should get about um, one gallon per minute. Okay. Uh, so that's 16 gallons per minute into the top times 10 for the drop divided by 50 for the rise times 0.33 for the efficiency. So again, one gallon per minute or about 1,440 gallons per day. 
Um, you could increase to about 70 feet and use a commercial ram pump. Uh, so if you have that same 10 foot drop, but you're gonna rise it up 70 feet, maybe to get into the top of the tank, um, you would get about 1.3 gallons per minute. So in that scenario, you'd probably wanna step up to a commercial. Now the best practice is to limit your delivery um, rise to a one seven ratio. So for every 10 foot of drop, you can get about 70 foot of rise. And again, you use that formula to determine exactly how much water you're actually gonna get. So hopefully that answers your question, Greg. Absolutely, in a nutshell, is the answer. This will work. Uh, as a reminder, guys, I am launching a Kickstarter. Uh, the Kickstarter is called Solar Water Pumping. It's gonna all be about uh, pumping water using the sun without inverters or batteries. So just a pump, a linear current booster, and solar panels. And we're gonna test several different uh, styles of panels, pumps, and controllers. That's gonna go live on June 9th. Uh, you can go to my website, which is hackmyhomestead.com slash SWP, and scroll to the bottom of the page. You'll see a place where you can sign up to get emails on the Kickstarter, uh, or you can actually just go to kickstarter.com and search for solar water pumping. Um, we have gotten several round pump questions, so that might actually be my first stretch goal if we do end up getting funded. Uh, we might do some testing on the RAM pump as well. But all the questions that you might have about uh, the Kickstarter should be answered there. What exactly we're doing, what the deliverables are, uh, what the different levels that you can pledge to support it, and what you get in return for those different levels. So with that being said, wrap it up for today. Keep getting those questions into Jack, and I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. So Sean hit on it, but the most important factor in getting a, a ram pump to work is having direct vertical drop of the water. You have to be able to create that uh, to be able to get anywhere. Now, what I will say about them that I think is really impressive is when used in the manner being described, in other words, this thing's going to fill a cistern, I don't think it really matters unless it's a ridiculously small amount of water how much water it pumps a minute or an hour. Let's say it pumps... 30 gallons an hour, a half a gallon a minute. Who cares? It's filling up a cistern, and then I guess you're going to have some kind of float valve or something that says, I don't want no more. I'm not sure exactly how that works with a ramp pump. But it, it, it is not really that important if we're using a significantly sized cistern and then using gravity to move water from the cistern or a holding tank or what have you. So if we have a tank, let's say we get a big poly tank, a uh, 3,500-ground poly tank, and instead of being a cistern in the ground, it's literally sitting up. So we have to get, like Sean said, up to the top of the tank. That's going to be about, I think those tanks are right at about 8 foot where the inlet is on them. So you have that tank sitting up on a hill 50 feet above where your water's coming from. Um, it takes a long time to use 3,500 gallons of water. So... It doesn't really mean much to me anyway, whether you're using a, a, a solar pump or a ramp pump or anything that's maybe moving a relatively small amount of water because I've seen the effects of small amounts of water across time where I had a, a, a improperly installed air conditioning unit at my house in Arkansas and we ended up with pretty much a lake under the house. Uh, it wasn't hard to fix, fortunately, but we were getting tore up by mosquitoes. I'm like, where the hell are all these mosquitoes coming from? Uh, we had a mobile home, and there's a lot of space under there, and there was a you know, little tiny drip, and it made a, a pretty nice mosquito lake underneath the house. So the cumulative action across time, because this runs nonstop, unless you have a way of shutting it off, 
seems like it's not really that important unless it's something stupid like one drop an hour. That that would be a different thing. Anyway, with that, let's move on and let's hear from C.J. Kilmer about an organization that was known as MOVE, M-O-V-E, all caps. Hey, this is C.J. from the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm responding here to a question from Reed that was sent in a little while back, and the question is about the Move 9, as they were known in Philadelphia, and I guess what happened to the organization called Move overall. So, first off, I admit I am not a super-duper expert in the history and details of this organization, but in case you haven't heard of it, there's an organization founded in Philadelphia in the early 70s called MOVE, and it is spelled with all caps, capital M-O-V-E, all, all in caps. And my understanding is that it kind of combines religion and political activism, and that at least some people consider it a cult or sort of, you know, borderline cult, something like that. I'm not taking a hard stance on that, just saying, you know, that it's one of those sort of fringe organizations that at least some people accuse of being culty. Definitely, the little I know about them, you know, it definitely seems like there's some shady stuff there, but certainly wouldn't endorse what ended up happening to them as being okay or justified. But my understanding is that their belief system sort of combines kind of radical black power type of ideology with anarcho-primitivism and kind of hardcore environmentalism, animal rights ideology, sort of blending that together. Um, my understanding is that most, or even perhaps all, I'm not sure, members of the organization are black. But anyway, one way or another, they started to get into conflicts in Philadelphia with some of their neighbors and then also with the government. And the short version is that in, I believe, 1978, late 70s, they got into a gunfight with some Philadelphia police and a police officer was killed, but then it's kind of a, a sketchy situation. There were allegations that the MOVE members didn't actually kill the police officer, that the police may have accidentally shot their own guy and then pinned it on MOVE because they wanted to, you know, bust them anyway. I've not dug into this with enough research to be anything um, but agnostic on the question of what really happened, but that nine members of MOVE got prosecuted and convicted and sent to prison um, for, you know, hefty sentences. I think um, the last member to be released from prison was only a few years ago. And it's a very sketchy and questionable and controversial case. And again, I can't claim to be enough of an expert to have a really strong opinion on, you know, what exactly happened, but it sure looks at least a little bit fishy that this organization, you know, whatever they may have done wrong, that they, you know, didn't deserve and wasn't justified when it ended up happening to them, and that the cop getting killed was at least somewhat questionable and controversial. But then, in my opinion, the more controversial aspect of the whole thing was several years later, in 1985, there was another altercation between MOVE and law enforcement that, again, turned violent. And ultimately, the Philadelphia police actually dropped a couple of bombs of some sort from a helicopter onto the MOVE headquarters that then resulted in a massive fire. and. 
my understanding is that the Philadelphia Fire Department deliberately kind of stood down and let the fire burn. And it ultimately destroyed, uh, I think, a couple of city blocks and, you know, a whole bunch of other buildings and homes nearby that were not connected to move. And, you know, a bunch of people ended up losing their homes. And ultimately, 11 people, six adults and five children were killed by the fire. And that some of the survivors and their relatives ended up actually winning an excessive force lawsuit eventually. And one thing I do recall is that in 2013, there was a documentary made about this whole thing called Let the Fire Burn. And I have seen this documentary. I would say I probably saw it in 2014 or 2015, you know, not too long after it was made. And it's been long enough, obviously, you know, close to a decade since I've seen it. I don't remember a huge amount of details and I haven't had time to, you know, rewatch it since then, just because I'm always so busy with other projects and things. But I remember that the documentary made the whole thing seem very shady and fishy, and that for sure it kind of looked like another one of those Waco, Ruby Ridge type situations, in which you've got an outside the mainstream organization that maybe is doing a few things wrong, maybe is doing a few legit things that they ought to be investigated and maybe even prosecuted for, but that ultimately there's um, there's kind of a deliberate targeting by law enforcement to destroy the group come hell or high water that results in massive escalation and excessive force being used. And for sure, this is another one, and this is, you know, basically a left-wing organization, but it's another one, again, like the Branch Davidians and some other groups, where regardless of what you think about the group and their beliefs, and maybe even some of the things they've done, that they certainly don't deserve what ended up happening to them, that there was like a deliberate targeting of them, and that ultimately, you know, lots of innocent people, including children, were killed and hurt and damaged and made homeless and whatever. So, yeah, it is yet another example of how if you end up on the wrong side of the government, whether it's the ATF or whether it's even just, you know, a big city police department, bad things can happen to you. But, yeah, the documentary is called Let the Fire Burn, if you want to look it up. And again, you know, how dramatic can you get that the Philadelphia Police Department dropped two bombs on Philadelphia and ended up, you know, destroying multiple city blocks and killing people because they dropped two bombs and then they refused to try and put the fire out in a timely fashion. So, exhibit number 9,427A, that we are in fact ruled by psychopaths. You mean that law enforcement would actually lie and say one of their officers was killed in a confrontation where they weren't? No, we've never seen anything like that happen recently, have we? Anyway, I think the the biggest issue in this whole story is regardless of how bad this organization may or may not have been, I don't know that much about them either. The police department of the city of Philadelphia dropped bombs on residential housing and allowed it to burn. I don't know that you need to know more than that. And so I just think that people, when they start saying things like, well, the police would never do that, the military would never fire on civilians. Okay, so the police did it, and the military has fired on civilians. And so we just have to stop living in this fantasy land. Uh, Past performance is no guarantee of future results, but history has shown it to be a strong indicator. That might be what you read at the bottom of a prospectus on a mutual fund, but it applies to more than just mutual funds, as many things do. Moving on, let's hear about net carbs versus total carbs from Dr. Kenberry. 
Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Thomas. Thomas says, please explain the total carbs versus net carbs thing for us keto beginners. A well-meaning friend recently got me some keto-friendly ice cream, and I was unsure how to handle the nutritional information. Sugar alcohols are advertised as keto-friendly, but are they really? Good question. If I understand what I have heard, they can't be fully metabolized, so they're all they're not all of their carbs count. That is true. So sugar alcohols do not contribute for ca- sugar calories per gram, but they do contribute anywhere from two to three calories per gram. But since it's not four, many of the keto manufacturers will pretend that sugar alcohols don't raise your blood sugar, which they absolutely do. They also definitely raise your insulin levels. And so the difference between counting total carbs and net carbs is, the, for many people, the difference between uh, reaping the rewards of a ketogenic diet or failing on a ketogenic diet. A friend of mine did an experiment. She was trying to eat under 20 grams of net carbs per day. And during this experiment, in some days, she would actually eat 120 grams of total carbs a day, but still be under net 20. And so the, there's, this is where ma- food manufacturers will trick you because they'll put on the front of the package only four grams of, of, of net carbs. And you're like, oh, damn, that's good. And it also says keto on the front of the pack. And then you'll think, well, this is totally fine. I can eat this keto ice cream every day or this keto protein bar or this keto cookie cake, pie, pancake, syrup, whatever. No, no. First of all, keto is real food. It is not things that are made in a chemical factory and then added to your food. Real food is meat and veg. That's what real keto is. Now, I count total carbs in any food, including green veg, nuts, and berries, because some people are much more sensitive to the total carb count than others. And I'm one of those people that fatten very easily and develop prediabetes very easily. So even the carbs in nuts and veg and berries, I can eat too many of those because they're much more hyper palatable to me, which means I can eat a bunch of them. Whereas if I, if I count total carbs, then I stay good and healthy and my belly stays flat. So anybody who's trying to tell you that counting net carbs is fine, they'll probably have a keto shake to sell you. And any ingredient on the ingredient that doesn't occur naturally in nature in the same proportion, that's probably a problem that you should avoid. Count total carbs, not net carbs, if you would like to to be one of the success stories that you're always reading about in the keto community. Do not fall for the advertising, the marketing, that net carbs are the way to go. That's the way to go if you're trying to make a million dollars making keto food. But if what you're trying to do is optimize your health, then you want to count total carbs and keep your total carbs under 20 each and every day. Hope this helps. I've got lots of YouTube videos about this. If you need more information, this is Dr. Barry. See you next time. So I, I think when we get into net carbs and total carbs, we really have to completely separate two different worlds. Uh, Ken has said himself, you can trust broccoli. You can trust cauliflower. So to me, when you're eating a natural whole food and you look at the fiber content per serving, backing those carbs out of your total carbs is completely fine. If you're looking at a packaged, processed product, I think you might as well just throw the thing away and not use it. 
I have been immensely disappointed in testing out and watching other people test out many of these so-called low-carb products. Uh, one that got us, because I think it's because we wanted to believe it, was the Mission Tortillas, the, the low-carb balanced Mission Tortillas. So I watched several different well-known YouTubers eat these things and do glucose testing. And not only did they get a glucose spike, it actually was a worse spike than just eating a dadgone regular processed tortilla from the same company. So I think you just have to, the packaged stuff you have to throw away or accept that it ain't what it says it is. And, and then I guess you can count total carbs, but to me, like, if it's going to cause a bigger spike than the regular thing, then maybe just that's the day that you eat the regular thing and account for it, okay? Now, there is another world in this, though, because he talked about sugar alcohols. There are a variety of different zero-calorie, no-calorie uh, sugars, sweeteners, etc. There's a video... And Ken said, I love this video. His comment was pinned for a while. I'm not sure if it was still it. I, I, I didn't check. But it, it, it's done by a couple. They call themselves, I think, Keto Connect. It's the best sweetener video on blood sugar I've seen. And they go through, you know, sulacrose, maltose, all the stuff. Uh, xylitol, etc. And they get up in the morning. They do a blood sugar test. Then they eat, like, the equivalent of two tablespoons of sugar of just the sweetener itself. Wait 30 minutes and take their blood sugar again. And some of it had zero effect on blood sugar, and some of it caused a spike worse than sugar. The one that caused the biggest spike in blood sugar, the one that was worse than just regular, because they start off, they do table, you know, regular table sugar to get a baseline. They put themselves through it one day at a time for science, for real science. That no Normal people can actually do real science. And uh, they disclosed everything, and the maltose uh, was worse than real sugar. It's malatose, maltose, whatever it is. It starts out. What, what made me sick about this is if you go to a grocery store, you'll find a diabetic food section, okay? And you'll see all these candies and shit like that for diabetics because they're, you know, non-blood sugars. They, that's what they use. And, and I think we need to start, and this is where I think a lot of people go wrong with keto. Somebody who decides to go keto, the first thing they want to do is make bread. They want to make, you know, Cheese ball, pizza, popcorn, cotton candy balls all together in one or something. Like, the point is to clean your body up and eat whole foods. That's really what it's all about. It's not just blood sugar. And to eat an ancestrally appropriate diet. That said, I think it's fine to use some of these sweeteners, the ones that pass muster. You know, monk fruit, for instance, passes muster. Stevia passes muster. With one caveat, and it's something that is neat, needs to be said and needs to be thought about. If you are a sugar-addicted, carb-addicted person, eating sweet things, especially early on, can completely derail you and cause you, even if everything you ate was okay, it can cause you to go off the reservation. And it can cause you to backslide, and it can cause you to have problems, and it can make your cravings increase. So it's just something you need to be aware of. I think there's a ton of people out there that if they go total carbs and they stay under 50 carbs a day based on three meals, so more like 40 carbs a day uh, based on two meals a day, if they stay under that and count all carbs, they do really well. Ken's even said he's seen people, you know, I can't do it, he can't do it. We're very sensitive to this, both of us, probably due to our genetics. But there are people, they bring it under 100 total carbs, 
and all their labs are great, they lose weight, they're in great shape. It doesn't mean they maybe couldn't perform at a higher optimal level biologically if they went further, but it's good enough for them. So I think we all have to find this for ourselves. But I am really opposed at this point to any of these prepackaged supposed keto things. We should be making our own things. And here's a great example of how simple it can be. Today I wanted a breakfast taco, and instead of using a low-carb tortilla or something like that, I took a single egg, a single duck egg, and about an equal amount of shredded cheese. In this case, it was like a Mexican cheese with some jalapeno pepper, and it could be any good shredded cheese, though. I mixed it together. I got a, 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 a carbon steel skillet, nice and hot, well-seasoned, so nothing's going to stick, and I poured it and let it form the shape of like a big pancake. And I cooked the crap out of it to work out brown and crusty on one side and was barely wet on the top and very carefully, so I didn't tear it, flipped it and cooked the crap out of the other side. I threw it on some paper towel to let some of the oil drain off it, let it cool down so it wasn't too super hot, put it on a plate, threw five pieces of bacon on it, some guacamole, and a little bit of fresh cheese, and had a breakfast taco. Well, there's nothing in there. That ain't keto. There's nothing. That's actually, that was a carnivore breakfast taco except for the guacamole. So, there are ways to do this without buying prepackaged crap. It generally costs less, and many of us are homesteaders, and do not overlook the value of those eggs that your birds are producing. Just some thoughts. And I'm probably going to be doing some more like Jack Cooking with Jack videos on some of this stuff coming soon because you guys seem to like that. Let's talk about finding a good butcher next with Josh, the renegade butcher. Hello there, Jack and TSPers. Josh, the Renegade Butcher here, coming to you again with another question for the Expert Council. Been a while since I've tossed one out, so here we go. Finally doing a little catch-up. Uh, Rachel asks, are there any questions that you would ask when looking for a good butcher? I've covered this a little bit in a previous question. Uh, we were talking about kind of how do you know if it's uh, the person you're dealing with is, is a shady butcher. But it's a good question. So what would you ask somebody to find out if they're a good butcher? Well, it really is going to depend a lot on what your goals are, what you're looking for, and what type of butcher. Um, are you talking about uh, processing, say, poultry or rabbits? Because your questions might be a little bit different. Uh, and if your goals are going to be butchering privately for yourself and your family versus, say, butchering to resell, uh, like uh, individual cuts, so... Whether or not you're looking for a custom exempt butcher or a USDA inspected butcher, or whether you're just looking for somebody to uh, to help teach you and uh, you know just kind of be that guy, I would start with questions though on like where they got into it, what their background is. Um, just sit and have a chat with them and see if they're like minded. Find out uh, are they into livestock at all themselves? Do they do any kind of homesteading? Uh, you can usually feel somebody out pretty well uh, that way. I think probably what's more important, though, than asking the butcher the questions, obviously it's good to have a great rapport with those guys. But what, to me, is more important is asking your community, other people who are using them uh, with any business, do your due diligence and get some local reviews. Talk to these guys uh, that are actually using them, who are in the industry that you're interested in getting into. Uh, whether, like I said, whether it's poultry, if you're running pasture poultry and you're trying to resell it, you obviously want someone who's going to do a top-notch job. If uh, you're just trying to get your own birds processed, you know, and the same when it comes to larger livestock. So it, there's not really any set questions that are like gotchas. 
you just know this guy's this guy's a good butcher. But there's always uh, there's always going to be some red flags. If you see somebody avoiding questions, if you see somebody who is not willing to at least let you kind of tour the facility, look around, if they don't want to walk you through the process, if they they have sort of like a closed door attitude or they don't seem like they have the time to really respond to those questions, I'd probably move on and find somebody else if possible. Um, I know Rachel was having this discussion with me a little bit uh, when she had asked. She had asked during my show, but said, let's put this out on the expert council. And uh, she's found a really good butcher. So she figured it'd be a good uh, a good one to throw out there because uh, some other people, I'm sure, are asking that same question. Don't mind the rooster in the background. I'm actually recording this from uh, from home, setting up a little podcast studio. But, yeah, I think that's about the, the most I have to cover on it. I'd love to rattle on a little bit longer. But uh, it's just one of those I think you should probably make a personal connection with that individual. Uh, we need more of that in all different industries and all different businesses. And uh, hopefully uh, you guys got something enlightening out of this. If you have any questions when it comes to meat, seasoning, or hell, if you, if you want to throw something out there on the idea of Noster or integrating lightning into your business, let me know. I've been diving hardcore into that a lot lately. It's been uh, taking a lot of my focus, so I'm trying to readjust and balance and make sure that I uh, <laughs> diversify what I am doing here. So, guys, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Uh, I know Jack's going to probably be airing this on a Friday, so I hope you have a great weekend. Go do something awesome and uh, keep your knives sharp and your mind sharper. So, I mean, th- this is kind of how I-, I-, I feel about this. Like, one of the problems that people have with butchers is often not understanding how much meat comes off an animal. One of the biggest complaints I've heard from people is, you know, I took a deer in and I only got like 65 pounds of meat. I'm like, well, you did really good then. You know, how big was this deer? Because that's that's a significant amount of meat off a whitetail. I mean, you, you, your average, you know, like year and a half two-and-a-half-year-old doe that I shoot, you don't get anywhere near that amount of meat off of them. So there is this expectation that people have of a a, a meat yield that is not the same. And so that's one of the things. My other thing, though, and this is what I'm bigger on, is like if I buy a a half a steer, split one with somebody or something like that, I found a great butcher out uh, in Weatherford, and I'm really concerned about the quality of the meat cutting if I'm paying somebody to cut meat. Because I could cut meat really well. I could just say, you know, hang it. When the primals are ready to be dealt with, I'll come get it. And I could grind the grind, and I, and I, but I pay for that processing. So I expect quality cuts. When I throw a steak on the grill and I want to sear it, I want good straight cuts. And when I say I want my steaks cut an inch or an inch and a quarter, then I want to be able to literally take out a, a, a ruler and measure it. Now, if you have an end cut that's a little bit off or the last one has a, a taper on it, I get that. And if you're, if you're bitching about that, then your butcher probably should have said, screw this guy's one more ribeye and threw it in the grinder. Right, because it's not a reasonable expectation. But I expect the majority of my cuts to be exactly what I asked for, and to look like somebody that was use, using a knife knew what they were doing. Um, and then the other side, honestly, right now, still, it's it's such a backlog on a lot of this stuff. You're lucky to find a butcher that can process stuff for you. And this is why, especially, let's say sheep size down, if you can set up to do your own processing, I think it makes a lot of sense, and it's a skill that's a good thing to learn. And I will tell you that even if you're eating, you know, mass-distributed CAFO beef, learning to cut 
primals or subprimals into your final cuts can save you two, three, four, sometimes six to seven dollars a pound. You know, going and buying basically the whole rib uh, ribeye primal and cutting your own ribeyes out of that, you just cut your bill. Plus, you're going to get exactly what you want. So I really encourage people to learn the basics of processing and the basics of cutting. But if you don't have the time or it's a big, you know, big animals are a pain in the butt. I don't want to process a cow. I, I don't have the equipment to do it without making myself miserable. Right? I mean, I, I remember one time that I, I went out on my own and I was able to take an elk. And it was a it was a two day pack out. It was it was a lot of work. And fortunately, I wasn't that far in where I I took this animal. But I was completely alone, and I was hanging freaking quarters in a tree so that it wouldn't get eaten by predators. And it took two days to get that animal out. So I that, that's kind of my limit there. And it wasn't a very big elk, by the way. Uh, so yeah, I, I get it when they're larger animals or high quantity like if you know something like that too like chickens or something i don't have the time for it so it is important to try to find a good butcher but try to you know this is what i'll say usually the kind of butcher we're talking about here you know it's not somebody only does deer and you know for for hunters if they're a butcher shop that also does processing and they have a meat counter look at the meat behind the counter the stuff that they're going to put out for people that just coming off the street and buy, which is what the place I, I shop at does, or I take use for butchering does, if that meat doesn't look like it was professionally cut, what do you think they're going to do with the stuff they throw in a box and, and give to you frozen? Just a thought. Moving on, let's talk about soil biomes and how living things in the soil make it through winter where we have very cold, harsh winters. Nick Ferguson here from Homegrown Liberty with a listener question, and he asks, I've been learning more about soil life, but no one covers the following question. The soil life needs to be fed by interactions with plants to survive, so how does the soil life survive cold winters in areas without evergreen plants? Well, most biological activity either slows or completely stops in freezing weather. If it's just cold weather, it's going to slow down massively. Hot weather, the biological activity speeds up. The ecosystem uh, hibernates, to put it loosely. Uh, these types of ecosystems are remarkably resilient. There are surges and die-offs of hundreds of thousands of species and trillions of organisms, plant, bacterial, fungal, protozoas, insects, all kinds of things um, surge and die off over a single growing season. Whole populations of these organisms surge and die. And then reproduce sometimes into a sessile or static uh, seed type form while waiting for optimal growing conditions. So if you're I don't know if you're familiar with or into sci-fi, think kind of stasis. Um, this is what seeds, fungi, bacteria, and what a lot of other organisms do to survive seasons when it's not optimal for them to thrive. So like fungi, for instance, they produce spores that can survive, I mean, insane environmental conditions and just sit there dormant for decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years while waiting for optimal conditions to spring into life again. Insects do the same 
kind of type of hibernation, the cold temperatures, slow metabolic processes to almost nothing. They basically stop respiration or they slow to imperceptible rates. <clears throat> Reptiles, amphibians, uh, they can normally do the same type of thing. I mean, baby turtles will often stay in their nest over winter before emerging in the spring looking for food. Um, so, yeah, the simple answer is that the soil doesn't need to be actively fed with root exudates to maintain a healthy balance of organisms. It's not like a uh, a drip feed of some medication for someone in an ER. It's not something that has to be happening all the time. The soil biome fluctuates naturally through the seasons with peaks and troughs of all sorts of different organism populations. Great question. Keep them coming. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. So this is, this is why... Uh, people like myself, people like Nick, etc., will will advise people in that early spring planting to use a high quality uh, bioavailable uh, organic fertilizer uh, right out of the gate because it's not an on-off switch. When you're having that soil begin its temperature rise, all those guys that are kind of in a suspended animation, they're kind of like Han Solo in the in the kryptonite or called the kryptonite, the carbonite. It's not like, oh, we're asleep, click, we're awake. The reptile analogy is a good one. The most dangerous time for you to get bit, especially by snakes like uh, water moccasins, a.k.a. cottonmouths, is right when they start to come out of bromation. Where what happens is these they'll go into these like mud burrows and they will come out of there and they'll literally, until they take their first swim, they'll be coated in mud and laying in mud. That's pretty good camouflage. And they're also very slow, and, and, and moccasins tend to not be a retreating snake anyway. We used to call them chicken snakes uh, in Florida because people would, like, walk up on them, and they gape, and they show you that cotton mouth, and, like, ah, here I am, I'm big, I won't go away, you better leave me alone. And then you back off, and the mouth closes, and you walk. We called the people that did it stupid, but we called the snake a chicken snake because they play chicken with them. Yeah. Well, the soil organisms are kind of like that. It's not, I'm asleep, now I'm awake. It's kind of like a teenager... On a, on a Saturday morning in the middle of the summer who stayed up late at night with his friends watching TV and ate Fruity Pebbles at 4 in the morning before he went to bed. How, how that kid wakes up. Only with our soil, it takes a number of weeks of warming that soil. So the, the, the add to this is if you're in especially these northern climates when you know you can plant because the plant will survive, it is really, I wouldn't say important, it will give you an advantage and get you up and going quicker to use a bioavailable, at least, you know, basic, your basic NPK of organic fertilizer early on until the biology allows the plants to get the nutrient from the soil life itself. Just a thought. Oh, moving on, let's talk about taxes and radios all in one thing from John Pugliano. Hello, TSP. We got a couple questions here, both a tax-related question and a radio question. And I love talking about radios a lot more than I love talking about taxes. But let's get to the tax question first. It comes from William, and he's got a bunch of paid time off that he's going to be receiving in his paycheck when he quits his current job. And he's concerned about taxes because the paid time off is about two months of accumulated pay. So he's worried that the government is going to take a substantial amount out of that last paycheck that he'd receive. And he's wondering if he should space it out or take some time off before he puts in his notice. Now, William, I think you're confusing how the tax system works. 
Your taxes aren't based on the amount that you receive in any one paycheck, but it's based on the accumulated amount of earned income that you make all year. So in your case, I wouldn't think that your employer is going to take out any additional amount over and above what the rate, you know, that you already have been paying based on your W-4. So you don't have to worry about spacing out the time unless you can split it up between two calendar years. So that would mean waiting till the end of this year before you put in your notice and taking, you know, half of that vacation time before the end of the year and the other half of the vacation time once 2024 starts. But it sounds like you're ready to do this right away, so I don't think that's an option. The bottom line, though, is that you're going to pay taxes based on your overall annual income. And so what you probably have to be worried about is not how much money is going to come out of that last check from your current employer, but rather are you going to end up owing additional taxes when you file for 2023? Because I don't know what you make, but I'm assuming that an extra couple months of income is going to put you into a higher tax bracket. Now, your employer is not going to know that, and so they're not going to withhold that money. But when you file your 2023 taxes, if you have gone up into an additional tax bracket, you'll have to pay that extra amount. And depending upon how much that is, it's probably a good idea to figure that out now and pay it ahead of time by submitting an estimated quarterly tax payment. Sounds more complicated than it is, but you can easily do it on the back of an envelope or there's plenty of online calculators that'll help you come up with your estimated tax payment for the year. Next question is about radios, and it comes from Sherry. She's looking for a couple sets of walkie-talkies. She wants to use these so they can communicate between cars when they're going to be on a long uh, driving vacation, and then probably going to use these radios later on on her property. Well, Sherry, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. Let me just give you the simplest, easiest method that I know works, because I've used it many times when I'm not using my ham radios. And that's simply to get a couple pairs of GMRS radios. That's GMRS, General Mobile Radio Service. I'd start on Amazon, and there's a variety of choices. They probably all come out of the same factory in China, so I wouldn't dwell on that too much. Let me give you the three main things that I'd be looking for in a radio. Number one, I'd want it to be pre-programmed with GMRS frequencies. Number two... I'd want it to have a removable antenna. The reason for that is that those little antennas that they come with are absolute garbage. And then number three, I'd want it to have at least five watts. So if you look for those things over at Amazon, you're probably going to see a lot of options. I just pulled up one real quick, and this is for a pair of radios that meet those three requirements that I just gave you. And I'm not promoting this brand or this particular one, but this is an Amazon choice. It's a Beofang GM15 Pro GMRS radio. Bottom line on this, it has the three things that I think that you need. And for a set of these radios, it's under $55. So I think that's a really good price. And as an added benefit, this set of radios also comes with the extra external antennas that I'd be telling you to buy anyways. So I think it's definitely a good deal for that price. And as a final recommendation, for the best experience, I'd encourage you to buy a mag mount antenna. It's a magnetic mount. It'll stick on the roof of your car. You can run the coax right in through the car window, and it will greatly magnify the distance that you can talk car to car. And you can pick up an antenna like that on Amazon for probably, I don't know, $25, $35 
well worth the money, and it'll save you a lot of aggravation. The one thing on that is when you buy that external mag mounting antenna, make sure that it either is compatible with the same fitting that's on the radio or that it comes with or that you can buy an extra little adapter to be able to hook it up to your walkie-talkie. Now, again, there's a lot of other ways you could skin that cat, but I think the information I just gave you is the simplest, and a radio like I described could also be expanded, and you could do a lot of other things with it in the future if you so desire. Hey, while we're on the topic of radios, I just want to put in a plug for ham radio. Right now, with the current solar cycle that we're experiencing, the radio bands have been wide open. Now, there has been some intermittent disruptions because of solar storms and coronal mass ejections and other things like that. But bottom line, radio conditions are about as good now as they've been in the last decade or so, and they should get better for another couple years under this current solar cycle. So if you've been dragging your feet about getting a general or an extra class ham radio license to use high frequency, or if you already have your license and just haven't been using your radio lately, definitely get out there and see where the propagation takes you. The other night I was just driving in my car and and there was some really good propagation into Europe. I had a couple really good contacts. Uh, One guy was in Verona, Italy. The other guy was in Lyon, France. And this was on 20 meters and I was using nothing more than a mini ham stick, no more than three foot tall, attached to the hatchback of my Subaru. So, hey, again, the radio conditions are fantastic. Get out there and use them. As always, thanks for the questions. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Uh, a few additions. One, the set that John mentioned, I pulled up on Amazon. I have a link to it in the show notes, too. Um, I did a little bit of uh, research on antennas and found the, the magnetic antenna I would include with this. And I wanted to say something about how these things work. They have a wire, a cable. It looks like a coax cable for a, a, a CATV. It's not the same, but it kind of looks like that. Just to kind of get your head around the size. We're talking about something a little bit smaller in diameter than like a man's little finger. Probably right about the, the diameter of the average woman's pinky finger. So it's a, it's a fairly substantial cable and it cannot be kinked or compressed so that means that you either would want to install these things in a way where they run through some access point into the vehicle permanently or you're going to be using them in a temporary manner where they're coming in a window and you will not be able to completely close the window now leaving a little crack in the back sliding window of a pickup truck is usually pretty doable for something like this but then you've got this cable coming you, you see what I'm saying here it's it, 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 you can't you have to deal with the issue of the antenna go on the outside the radio go on the inside and a wire go between yeah just something to think about there uh, and, and with this in mind, because you might make the decision to permanently install this in a more professional manner, I was able to find you a great set of antennas. They're about 25 bucks a piece, as much as in the antenna is in the radio at this point, right? Uh, the radios John has are just over $25 a piece. Uh, but once they were installed, you would have that pigtailed somewhere, and you'd be able to just connect your radio and go. 
Uh, and the, the antennas themselves are fairly small, compact antennas that m look more like something for satellite radio than a big whip antenna uh, that you typically would get from uh, like an old C-style CB or something. The other thing I'll say about this is a lot of people do this, and if you want it because you want it and you want to use it on your property and your property for cell signal sucks and all, okay, great. Um, but there's a reason everybody uses cell phones. So you might want to think about do you really need them or... Do you want them as a backup to cell communication? Because my wife and I threw some CBs in our pickup trucks when we both had trucks, and we would talk to each other on them, and it was fun-ish, but in the end, it was you know both sitting there with a cell phone next to us. So if you're doing it to augment cell phones, to back up cell phones, etc., great. But just don't forget you have another means of communication. And one of the things I really recommend that people do with their phones is to set up a private Zello channel for the family. And so that in an emergency situation, we can have everybody jointly communicating, even if they don't typically use it. You want them to use it enough to know how it works. And then if something goes down, there's a protocol. Everybody get on the Zello channel, right? It's not a replacement for ham radio. Ham radio always works if you know what you're doing. Uh, cell networks don't work all the time. But it's it's another means. So just a thought on that. On the tax implication, Jack, J, uh, John is exactly right, except John and I have to sometimes rewind our brain a little bit to when we were employees and got paid weekly. You can make enough in a single pay cycle that it triggers a higher withholding at that income level. And I remember that from times when I would have bonuses and things like that. And the total percentage actually did go up, but not by very much. In the end, it's all money that's coming back to you because you pay in the tax year total income. And like John said, only the overage, if you, if you switch tax brackets, you're only going to pay the higher rate on the part that's above. And there's no real way around this that makes sense. Your life and your freedom are worth more than trying to save 2% on the taxes that you'll pay. There's better ways to save money on your taxes. With that, let's move on and talk about curly freaking doc. What do we do about it? Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia and um, I have a question here about uh, strategies for overcoming curly dock and um, this is in a location where there is a low-lying area and there are ditches overrun with curly dock and um, they'd, they would like to run sheep through those areas but historically there's been a mix of dock mustard, chicory and other grasses. But they've had bad floods this year and it seems the only thing that has survived is the curly dock. And this is one hour south of Sacramento, California. Now, if you've got um, any compaction, you're gonna get decompaction weeds and dock's one of those, it's a real decompactor. If you've had floods um, and you've grazed anything at all, the extra moisture is going to cause extra compaction. And that's also going to create a drop in pH, making it more acid because airless means acid and compaction means airless and that means acid. So you're all the time leaning towards a germination condition of decompactors, which uh, have deep tap roots. DOC is a classic. So it's also um, acid soil tolerant. So whether it's just the flood creating more airless soil and acidity or a combination of that and compaction. But that's, I'd say, what you've got. And you've lost the mustard, the chicory and other grasses. 
Now, it will come back over time when the dock dies, the long tap roots will, will create compost corridors in the soil and a decompaction process over time. Nature's in no hurry. But if you're in a hurry and you're on a grey sheep, you need to physically decompact. So you can spike the ground if you've got a spike rolling device of any type or if there's not a lot of area, you could go over with a broad fork, but that might take some time. If it's possible to get across the area with a, a yeoman's plough, which is a very fine, tine, deep ripping, but expensive tractor implement, or a lot rougher, but gets the same job done, is a chisel plough, or any, any kind of spike roller. Typically, these drum rollers with spikes they use on golf course greens for the very same reason, because you're continuously mowing the golf course green, you end up with a compacted layer underneath the very shallow <coughs> golf course green grass roots what you've got is another scenario but that's that's what it's all about how do you physically decompact that area if you physically decompact it um, you could put down some lime which will adjust the ph uh, more towards neutral and more towards alkaline um, but um, i would definitely advise some kind of physical decompaction of the soil um, otherwise you're just going to have to stay destocked and let dock do its job but if you want to replace the job of Doc, you've got to physically decompact, add a bit of lime, and she should come back to a diverse pasture that you can graze your sheep on. You've got to keep your eye on it. It should work absolutely fine. All right, good stuff from Jeff Lawton, and it fits well with uh, my anchor segment because we are going to talk about uh, agriculture, gardening, seeds, permaculture, growing your own food, uh, agricultural endeavors, etc., to a degree anyway. George Washington once said, Bad seed is a robbery of the worst kind, for your pocketbook not only suffers by it, but your preparations are lost and a season passes away unimproved. Let's talk about it in the beginning, in the literal sense that he meant it when he said it. If you're a farmer, especially think about it, you're talking about late 1700s, early 1800s, your crop is your livelihood. If you buy seed from someone that's, Let's say it's old seed. It was improperly stored. It doesn't germinate. You went through all this. Think about how much was lost. And this is what Washington was saying. And it's a robbery. If the party selling you the seed knew or had reason to believe that the seed might not be high quality, and they sold it to you as high quality, they literally robbed you. Because not only did you not get what you paid for, right? So if I go buy a thing and they send, somebody sends me a box and it's empty, that's one thing. I got, I got robbed for the value of the thing and the thing only of itself. But as a farmer in the 1700s, early 1800s, I would invest countless hours plowing my field, spreading my seed, harrowing back over the seed after it was spread, and then tending to it. And then to get no yield. You didn't just deprive me of the value of the seed itself but of my own labor and of the result that was expected from my labor. You've robbed me three times through a single robbery. Now again, Washington was speaking of this from the viewpoint that the person who sold the seed knew what they were doing. It wasn't an error. It wasn't a mistake. It was intentional. And things like that did happen and continue to happen even to this day. People sell uh, inferior items, marketing them as quality items. Yeah, 
But I want to take this to a different level. Are you investing in bad seed? And are you doing it to yourself, knowingly? So you can look at this as a much bigger thing than just actual seed that we can put in the ground. What if we use poor quality materials and unskilled labor in our business we're, and we market our business as top quality? We're robbing from our customers. What if we're doing our own building and to cut corners, we use inferior quality material? Then we're robbing from ourselves. What if we say we're going to improve our health, but we keep eating junk? We're planting bad seeds. We're investing in poor quality. If you are a computer programmer and you're using some junk code, the final product quality will suffer. And as these things that are long-term outputs suffer, the robbery is two or threefold just a poor quality thing that you knew was poor quality when you got it. And it's something I think we should all be examining in our lives. If we're going to go build something, we should make sure that this is... It really can be summed up right in one of my, my, my tenets of modern survivalism and laws of life. Always be frugal, never be cheap. Frugality is a virtue. And I know virtue has gotten to be a bad word because of the concept of virtue signaling. No, virtue signaling is, is a bad thing. Virtue is a good thing. A virtue by its own thing is a good thing, a positive thing. Someone has courage. That courage is a virtue. All right? Courage improperly applied becomes a poor virtue, though. It can get a person killed that otherwise could have done whatever necessary without bringing harm to themselves or without dying anyway. Right? But it is a virtue. And frugal, frugality is a virtue. Cheapness is a vice. Okay? Frugality, virtue, cheapness is a vice. When we go out and we, to save a little money today, cost ourselves in the long run, we are robbing from our own future. And it's done all the time by people that don't have to do it. Often, if a purchase were deferred a couple, three weeks, the better quality item could be purchased and the long-term cost would be lower. I use a garden hose for this all the time because you can go out and buy a cheap garden hose right now and you'll throw it away next year. Or you can go buy a quality garden hose for two to three times the price, but ten years from now, maybe you're putting a, you know, maybe you put a new uh, fit, fitting on the end of it and you're still using it. Well, which one costs less across time? And when I talk like this, people often say, does it matter that much? And the answer is yes, it does. Because it is the result of practicing this mindset over and over and over and over again across the lifetime that changes the, you know, what does your retirement look like when we're just talking about money alone? What does your retirement look like? If we invest in, our, in a home that we're building or we're, we're remodeling and we put the very best quality in, then when we retire, there's no maintenance to do on the home when we have a lower income. But if we, if we put in substandard things, like I'm going to have to, within the next five years, put a roof on this house. I'm going to put some form of a metal roof on my house. And I'll die before that roof needs to be replaced. It will cost me significantly more now but I would rather spend the money now when I can just earn more money than have to worry about it in my retirement. Or if I get killed by a truck or something, Dorothy having to worry about it. Right? I don't want to have to worry about it then. 
And so how many places can you see this in your own life? Are you planting a bad seed? Habits are bad seeds if they're bad habits. Good habits are good seeds that we plant and last a lifetime. It only takes about three or four weeks of doing something every day to turn it into a habit. If it's a bad habit or a good habit, it doesn't really matter. And what will happen is when you turn something into a true habit, you, you have a hard time seeing living your life without it, whether it's a virtue or a vice. Are you planting bad seed? Just something to think about, and I thought it was a good discussion to have going into a weekend. Again, it could be junk code, substandard building materials, poor behavior with your finances. All of these things are bad seeds. And it can be exactly what we said. I, there's few things that have upset me more than buying seed that doesn't germinate. That is a that is a real I mean a real thing too, and I've even had it happen from quality providers. I bought uh, some pepper seeds one year, uh, Cuban L peppers, one of my favorite peppers, and I bought a lot of them because I was going to make a lot of peppers that year and give them away to neighbors and stuff like that. And I got no germination, none. And if you're planting your peppers six weeks before set out, and it takes two weeks to figure out it ain't happening then you have, you've been set back a season. Now, I was able to get past it, and I was able to figure out how to get the seed to germinate. But this is why I highly recommend it. If you buy seed, you buy it before you need it. I'm not saying trying to store it for years and years, because that's going to degrade germination. But buy it before you need it. Buy it at least, you know, buy your seed for spring in the fall. That's plenty of time for it to stay viable. And immediately germination test it so that you don't lose a season. Because you, in, in some way, even though the provider sold you the bad seed, it's your seed. You bought it. It sat around for two or three months before you thought you needed it. You never tested it. How do you test it? Wet paper towel, put some seed on it, fold a paper towel over, put it in a Ziploc bag, wait a couple days and see what, what percentage of it germinates. Little Little hack. How do you think I saved my season that year? A lot of times seed that will not germinate in soil will germinate on a paper towel like that. So you can wait until you see the little rootlets stick out of the seed, then put it into the, into the soil, and it'll grow. A little extra for you there. And by the way, you want your seed to last longer? Store it along with some biochar. About a teaspoon of biochar into your seed packet, and your seed will just store better and longer and remain viable longer. Anyway, with that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to help support us, one of the ways to do that is do your online shopping. Where? Tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z. Tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is actually just like a deal of the day alert. DeWalt has its cordless jigsaw, bare tool only. And this is the high-end brushless one. It's the one I own personally. It's on sale for 99 bucks. This is a $200 plus jigsaw for 99 bucks. It's like 54 or 56% off. I don't remember exactly. If you're a DeWalt user and you already have chargers and batteries and everything and you don't have a jigsaw, I would get one today and I would get it as early as possible because these deals from DeWalt tend to not last long. Now, I'll say that one day, and it'll be five days later, and it'll still be on sale, and it'll be the exception. All I'm telling you is that will be that would be the unicorn, right? The the the, the plain old horse is 
A lot of stuff that DeWalt has goes on sale. I say it's $99. Bucks. You go to buy it three hours later, and it's $129. And the person who tries to buy it like three hours after that, it's like $169. And the person who tries to buy it tomorrow, it's back to the original price. It happens all the time. So, so far, so good. As of right now, with me speaking at 12.50 p.m. CST, it is still on sale, and it's 52% off. Normally, $205 on sale for $99. Bucks. That could and sooner or later will change. And I think this is a great item to pick up when it's on sale like this as a bare tool. And this is why it tends to be, as you outfit yourself with, with cordless power tools, one of the last things people buy. It's the thing that when you need it, you really need it. But there's a lot of things that it would be good for that you can get by without it. And I'll tell you, when it went on sale last time, I picked one up. And the only reason I didn't buy one at this price is I already got one. So... Uh, you can always help us out. Just start your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And uh, that's whether you buy what we're, we're, you know, the products we recommend and reviewed or not. Anything you buy online, if you start there, you help us out. Uh, also, remember that you can support us by doing your online shop. And I'm sorry. where You can help us by joining the Member Support Brigade. You get a ton of discounts. And the discounts pay for the membership, and you support the show you love. And one more call out here at the very end for Sean Mills and his solar water pumping Kickstarter. I do have a link in the show notes today. I have a post about it on the blog. It'll be in the Daily Mail, etc. All my social media and all. Uh, Sean has given a lot to us. Throw $25, $50 bucks at it. Get the information. You can never have too much knowledge. And support a guy that has done so much to help this community. With that, I wish you a great weekend. Make it productive. Go outside and get shit done. It's been Jack Spear. Go to another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way